Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. History is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. Not to put too fine a point on the matter, General Washington was in fact highly, well, he was very angry. In fact, he was on the verge of losing his legendary cool as he waited, having arrived in Philadelphia some week before, for the convention delegates to gather, as they had been scheduled to do so on the 14th of May, but because of weather, had not been able to complete their arrival. In fact, only eight had arrived by the start date. And now, nearly a week later, there aren't many more there yet. However, there is some rumbling, and word has been received from Providence, Rhode Island, that the state of Rhode Island will be sending no delegates. This, of course, has the general very upset. But there's also other rumblings going on as well. The general is making the party circuit in Philadelphia. It's kind of an interesting, an interesting social phenomena that doesn't really exist anymore in our world. But at the time, there was no Facebook. There was no Internet. There were no telephones. There were no electrical means of communicating at all. And rather than avoid one another, people tended to gather and find gathering places and in fancy homes. And they would have grand parties and dinners, and as many people as they could possibly fit in, they would. And this is where the networking, the Facebooking of the day, would take place in the 1780s. In one of these moments, George Washington had this to say, I very much fear that all the states will not appear in convention and that some will come fettered so as to impede rather than accelerate the great object of their convening, which would place me in a more disagreeable situation than any other member would stand in. General Washington, of course, had reluctantly only agreed to attend the convention because of its stated purpose of reestablishing the government of the United States as a valid government. General Washington had desired a peaceable retirement. He did not desire any further service and, in fact, wanted very seriously and very much to avoid any further public service of that nature. But when it became apparent that the convention required gravitas, when, it, when, it, when Virginia acknowledged the fact that it was going to participate, there was only one name that they could possibly have sent that would have given any validity to the conference. And so many people prevailed upon General Washington to go, including some who wrote him quite extensively that, you know, you really shouldn't go. And you know why you shouldn't go? Because it's not going to work anyway. And you don't want to have your great name sullied by having gone to such an event as this. That letter came to General Washington from men like John Jay, 
Knox, even James Madison, all wrote to the general trying to convince him that he should go. The letter that seems to have the most impetus on him, however, was the letter that told him he shouldn't go because it wouldn't succeed and he didn't want his name associated with something that was not successful. The general realized at that point that the writer of that letter, Jay, was probably correct and that if he didn't go, it would definitely fail. And then questions might be raised about his own uh, unwillingness to be involved. So the general had made the decision to go. Arriving in Philadelphia on May 13th, he had uh, arrived to a a great welcome. Remember the Cincinnatus Cincinnatus Society was in town, which uh, venerated men like Washington who had the power of the dictator and laid it down voluntarily and walked away. There were a great number of dignitaries in town, including the Presbyterian ministers, of course, all the convention folks who were showing up slowly but surely in Philadelphia had welcomed General Washington with great pomp and with great circumstance. But now as the delay went on, there was literally nothing else to do but go to these parties at night in the evenings where late into the night they would discuss the prospects of the convention and exchange their feelings about what was going on. The general, of course, had heard that New uh, Rhode Island was not going to send a delegation. And it became very apparent that this was very, very angering to the general. In some ways, he almost took it seemingly as a personal slight. If you read some of the things that he had to say about it, it almost seems like he took it very personally that Rhode Island, a a state which had uh, participated in the Revolutionary War and which uh, he was well familiar with, seemingly just sort of walked away from the other states and refused to send anyone. Of course, this was combined with anger already building towards Rhode Island. Rhode Island was, uh, as it was referred to in those days, uh, uh, petulant Rhode Island, had a long and stormy history of a relationship with the other states. If you go back to why Rhode Island was founded in the first place, you begin to understand that uh, it sort of had, I don't want to call it an, an inferiority complex because that's not what it is, but it certainly had an overcompensation uh, complex. Rhode Island, of course, first settled by uh, Puritan exiles, people who had been uh, booted out of Puritan Massachusetts, went to what would eventually become Rhode Island. And when the state was finally formed, it was well known for its behavior that was contrary to what the rest of New England, particularly, would find acceptable. For example, uh, Rhode Island was not an abolitionist state by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Rhode Island was uh, heavily involved in the slave trade. Uh, Rhode Island was very uh, dependent in some ways on the, on the triangle, the slave trade triangle, where the slaves would be brought to Africa, uh, then the, uh, the uh, traders would bring the molasses up to Rhode Island, where it would be distilled and then sent back over and so forth and so on. Rhode Island was also very heavily dependent on southern cotton for its textile industry, which was kind of an unusual relationship for New England states in that era. Most of the states had very little to do with the South, but Rhode Island was heavily invested in the South. And because of that investment and because of that relationship that they had, Rhode Island tended to be a a slave state, as it were. The interesting part about this, they, they, they did pass the first abolition law banning African slavery, 
but that's all they did. And if you understand Rhode Island, you understand why that matters. That's, that's what they did. They passed a law saying no more African slaves. But they didn't enforce it because, again, the reality of their economy was that they needed it. Uh, by 1774, the slave population of Rhode Island was 6.3%. That was twice any other New England state. And it was just uh, commonplace, really, in Rhode Island. There were several Rhode Island merchant families, most notably the Brown family. And if you're familiar at all with the Ivy League colleges and you're familiar at all with the East Coast, uh, Brown University, named after the Brown family, were actively involved in the triangle slave trade. In the years after the Revolution, that means after 1783, and the period we're talking about here, uh, Rhode Island's economy depended on that triangle trade. Rhode Islanders would distill rum from molasses, send the rum to Africa, trade for slaves, then the slaves were traded to the Indies for more molasses, and so forth and so on. In 1774, one Stephen Hawking, Hopkins, sorry, not Hawkins, he was uh, later a professor at Cambridge, uh, introduced a bill that prohibited the importation of slaves, but again, they didn't really enforce that law. In 1784, the Rhode Island legislature passed a compromise measure for gradual emancipation of slaves within Rhode Island. All children of slaves born after March 1st, 1784, were to be apprentices. The girls would become free at 18, the boys by 21. And by the 1840 census, there were only five African-American slaves in Rhode Island. But despite all these anti-slavery laws, the active international slave trade continued, And in 1789, an abolitionist society was organized to secure enforcement of the investing laws. Leading merchants like John Brown, for whom Brown University is named after, and another guy by the name of George DeWolf, continued to engage in the trade even after it became illegal. It was that relationship that kind of symbolized, if you will, Rhode Island's general relationship with the other states. Under the Articles of Confederation... The states had uh, equal representation and equal say in international or in national uh, events and national projects and the likes of that. And Rhode Island uh, was well known for stopping such things from happening by essentially voting no or voting yes, whichever way would would get what they what was best for them. And what was best for Rhode Island was to continue the somewhat duplicitous slave trade. And at the same time, and this is, what, this is what really infuriated many of the other states, Rhode Island would manipulate and issue its own currency. They would, they would issue their own currency and then manipulate it in such a way that their own currency would essentially devalue the other states' currencies. So if you came into Rhode Island from, say, Connecticut or Virginia or wherever, you would have to exchange your money for Rhode Island money at an exchange rate that was, of course, not very familiar to you, uh, or not very friendly to you. Sorry, not familiar, but (laughs) probably wasn't familiar either, but it was definitely not friendly. And Rhode Island merchants and Rhode Island bankers and Rhode Island businesses were becoming very wealthy on currency manipulation and by controlling trade and by excise taxes and the likes of that. Rhode Island was really, for its size, just really getting under the rest of the state's skin. And if you want to have an interesting experiment someday, 
understand Rhode Island's history, and then go through Article 1, Section 8, where the powers of Congress are enumerated. And you will find things in there that are almost specifically because of what Rhode Island was doing. For example, coin money. Uh, Only Congress can do that. Rhode Island can't do that on their own anymore. But when the idea for the convention came up, Rhode Island saw that the breeze was blowing towards a strong national government and knew that that would end its ability to manipulate currency, to manipulate events and and, uh, advantages for themselves. And so the city dwellers, I'm sorry, the country dwellers uh, in, in Rhode Island, who also very much valued their state's rights and liberty, formed what was become known as the Country Party in Rhode Island. And the Country Party nearly came very close to defeating the ratification of the Constitution in Rhode Island. And had they done so, we would only be 49 states today, although my supposition is that at some point we would have invaded Rhode Island and just said, you're part of Connecticut now, and ended it at that. But General Washington, during this week of rainstorms and parties, is becoming more and more angry and more and more concerned because, again, his personal reputation is on the line. And he also knows that if he does come here and Rhode Island manages to screw this up, as they have so many things, people are going to look at him and say, why didn't this work? And he will bear more responsibility than any other member of the convention. So I'm a cat, and I just moved in with this new human, and she's got this little toy she's always playing with all day long. Tap, 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 bloop, bloop. She can't put it down. There it is. Oh, and get this. She even talks to it. Last week, she asked it for Chinese. And guess what? Egg rolls showed up like magic. Humans have cool toys. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. I mentioned briefly that George Washington had been quite uh, received celebratorily uh, when he arrived in Philadelphia. Not only was um, he hailed, but around the country, he was referred to as, he was looked to as the man who was going to save the nation a second time. In fact, that poem that you heard at the start of today's show was actually taken from a nationalist paper, a paper that um, was hoping that George Washington would go to the convention and essentially not allow it to destroy the states and not allow it to form a strong national government. It was actually from a Rhode Island newspaper uh, where they talked about the fact that he needed to uh, essentially leave the state house and, and restore peace to the states. Don't allow them to do this. That actually came from a new uh, a Rhode Island newspaper published on May 5th 1787. The ideas that would be presented were already percolating long before the conventioners started to gather. And during that first week in particular, when there was literally nothing going on, the the convention's uh, delegates had not arrived. There were not enough people to really sit down and and start uh, the great work. And so there was a lot of anxiousness and eagerness 
And at the same time, there were a lot of parties, a lot of dinners, and a lot of meetings. Came to pass that the Washington, uh, the, the Virginia delegation, led by Washington, had in fact been meeting for as much as three hours every day since they all arrived in Philadelphia, or since they began to arrive in Philadelphia anyway. And the purpose of this meeting, the purpose of this three-hour, as much as three-hour meeting each and every day during this past week was to essentially draw up the outline for what Virginia believed should be the new government. In other words, before the convention even started, Virginia, led by Washington and by Madison, were sitting down and drawing up what they believed would be the new government. And of course, it was a strong central government that uh, took power away from uh, the states like Rhode Island and so forth and so on. This caused a, a row when it was discovered and it was discovered that Virginia was having these meetings. When that happened, Delaware nearly pulled out of the convention because Delaware as a small state felt like Virginia as a large state was going to run roughshod over what uh, Delaware's uh, rights and privileges were as a state. There was a great deal of anger. In fact, there were letters flying back and forth between Philadelphia and Delaware, which if you've ever been there really isn't that far, uh, but there was a great deal of communication, rapid communication via horseback going on uh, to try to get more, to, to try to decide one of, one of two things. Should we have more delegates here from Delaware to try to argue in favor of this? Or should we, in fact, pull out of this convention, as Rhode Island has done, at a protest for what we suspect uh, Washington and the Virginians are planning to do to the nation? Delaware would eventually decide to stick it out but there was always a great deal of suspicion looked upon with the smaller states in particular because they were concerned once it was known that the Virginians were, in essence, plotting behind everyone's back, uh, although not quite you know, that Machiavellian, uh, there was a lot of concern that the larger states were just going to simply run roughshod over the smaller states and enforce their will Upon them, and it's not an invalid concern if you think about what's going on here, in the in the broader scheme of the Constitution, in the broader scheme of the country. At that point, it's clear that the Virginians have a goal here. It's mostly the Virginians and Maryland, and that center section of the country, if you will, minus uh, minus Delaware that have really pushed for this, the Annapolis Conference a few months earlier, that have really, uh, they control the Chesapeake Bay. They have a lot at stake. And the belief is that they're willing to enforce their will. And there's a lot of concern. The letters that are being sent uh, back and forth by Delaware are telling in that they are, there's just a lot of fear and when you throw in Rhode Island refusing to send some, anybody, when you throw in Sam, Samuel Adams, when being asked by a reporter why he wasn't going to the convention, saying, quote, I smelt a rat, you have to come to the conclusion, you come to the conclusion that this first week 
of this convention has not gotten off to a good start. It really hasn't. In fact, everything that pretty much could go wrong has gone wrong. Delaware is on the verge of leaving. Rhode Island isn't showing up. And the word is getting out that the Virginians are plotting in secret, although not quite as secret as they'd hoped, that they're going to get their way. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the Virginians ever thought to themselves, yes, we're just going to enforce something here. I don't think that that was ever their idea. But unfortunately, when things happen like this, uh, particularly in these kinds of situations, it's easy for uh, things to be misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied. And as George Washington, as General Washington, makes his rounds in the evenings for the inevitable dinner parties and Uh, socializing events that are going on, the questions are no doubt being asked. General, I heard the Virginians are meeting. What's going on? Uh, General, the Rhode Islanders are not coming. Why are are they not coming? General, what do you think of of Delaware sending their letter? The the rumors, you know, General, these are rumors. What do you think? Combined with, you know, having to, to be both diplomat as well as delegate, meant that things were very heated in those first non-accomplishment days, as it were, of the convention. And, of course, it is this Virginia plan that is going to be the focal point, I guess, really, of, of the next few weeks for the convention and the next few discussions about what's going on. The so-called Virginia plan was drafted by Madison. It would later become known as the Randolph plan or perhaps the large state plan. It was a uh, plan that um, was notable for its role in setting the overall agenda for the debate and particularly for setting forth a population-weighted representation in the national legislature. This was something that, again, up to this point really hadn't been done. The Continental Congress and the, the uh, under the and the Congress under the Articles of Confederation wasn't really handled that way. And with time on their hands, with time waiting, Madison uh, drew up this plan, and of course then they started having these meetings. And eventually, it would be Edmund Randolph, who in a couple weeks' time, or next week's time, is going to present this to the convention. When we get there, of course, this is going to cause another set of uh, problems, but it is uh, eventually what will wind up happening downstream. The you, If you were to look at the Virginia plan in detail, you would recognize some of the ideas that will eventually come out as the constitutional government of the United States, but there are some things that you won't necessarily uh, see. So you've got 13 states that have, thir- uh, that have the 13 state legislatures. The 13 state legislatures send stuff to what is known as the second branch of the national legislature. The 13 states elect the first branch of the national legislature. Tax proposals have to be approved by both branches of the national legislature. Then this is sent on to a national executive, which is limited to one term. The national executive then is overseen by a council of revision, which then uh, goes to a court. It's not called that, but it's, 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 what, it's called the Supreme Tribunal. And then above that 
is the appeal of last resorts. And, of course, below that are inferior courts as established by the, the first and second branches of the national legislature. Again, this is not unfamiliar to us, and, and you can begin to see elements of this plan that Madison and the Virginians are drafting in what will eventually become the government of the United States. But the problem is that none of the delegates who are coming to this as yet, well, outside of Virginia, think that this is why they are coming. They do not believe that they are coming here to revise, uh, or they think they're coming there to revise the, the Articles of Confederation to make them work, not to reestablish some new form of government that is a radical departure from what has been in place, which is to not have a strong central government. A strong central government, of course, represents a great deal of threat to personal liberty. It represents a great deal of threat to states' rights. And in the case of petulant little Rhode Island, who writes a poem and publishes it in their paper, hoping that George Washington will uh, walk out on the convention, it represents a direct threat to their economy in in, in ways that uh, other states are finding both jealousy of and finding themselves jealous of and and at the same time finding themselves angered by because Rhode Island is taking advantage of these relationships uh, for their own financial gain. The plan as presented, and and we're going to get to this presentation, this plan will obviously get uh, a little more depth of this probably in the next week to two weeks when because this is really one of the first things that will happen when they finally do sit down and meet is that this plan will be presented as as 15 resolutions by Edmund Randolph, not by James Madison. The problem, of course, is, as I said, these other states don't think they're coming here for this. And when they find out that the Virginians are plotting this strong central government, all hell begins to break loose. And now the parties and now the, the social functions aren't quite as much fun anymore because the questions are coming thick and they're coming fast. And unlike certain political candidates of today who brush off questions from the public, these men didn't necessarily feel like they could. And so they had to have something to say and they had to have something to say soon because eventually this was all going to come out of the convention and eventually they were going to have to answer to the people for what they had suggested. And really, in a, in a strange way, what the Virginians were actually suggesting here was in some ways, hold on to your hats here, in some ways it was so radical as to be considered treasonous by some. They were essentially about to recommend that the United States of America the Confederacy as it was be dissolved now granted they were about to also suggest that it be reformed as a republic but not everybody was listening to that side of the equation were they this is Bill Mick from Bill Mick Live on WMMB in Melbourne Florida you can join me as well. I'm on Eastern Time, 6 to 9 a.m. every day at BillMick.com. Hit the Listen Live link, and you can pick up the podcast there as well. Morning conversation about the Space Coast, Florida, and the country. We do it every day. Bill Mick Live on WMMB. Among the other items discussed at the numerous social gatherings in Philadelphia in the week since the convention had been scheduled to convene 
was, of course, the news of the rebellion in western Massachusetts in the past year, led by uh, Captain Shays. We've talked at great length about Shays' rebellion and the influence that it would have over the Constitution as a whole later on. But it's intriguing to see the discussions at this point because, again, in this particular week in 1787, there was no Constitution as yet. And yet there was this uneasiness that there would be more rebellions like Shays' rebellions, which were difficult to object to strenuously. I think the closest thing I can find in some ways to Shays' Rebellion, the closest contemporary event of the nature of of that in the way that it had shaped public opinion and the way that it has changed governmental activities is really Edward Snowden. Now, whether or not you think Snowden is a hero or not, you... You really look at him, if you're looking intellectually honestly at him, you look at him with two different eyes. There's a side that is uncomfortable with the fact that he committed a crime, what is clearly a crime. He stole materials that did not belong to him. He stole those materials then, at least by his own statements, to protect the Fourth Amendment. In other words, to protect our rights, which, like Shays' Rebellion, the men of Shays' Rebellion, were rebelling against the government of the United States to secure rights that they believed that they had fought for and won during the American Revolutionary War. So they were once again taking up arms, which is bad, against the government, which is treason, to secure that which those liberties that they believed that they were entitled to and had won, which is, of course, good. Many of us look at the Snowden situation the same way, and whether or not you think he was a criminal or whether you think he's a hero is really not germane to the discussion, except that regardless of which side you're on, you have the uneasiness of the other side's view of him. For example, if you think that Edward Snowden is a hero, you still have to come to grips with the fact that he's done something illegal and potentially dangerous and continues to do so with the releases of his material. On the other hand, if you think that he's a criminal you also have to accept the fact that his criminal activities has exposed a massive, and now we know definitive from the courts, uh, government abuse of the Fourth Amendment. And so, much like Shays' Rebellion, there's a certain recoiling of disgust with what has happened, and yet at the same time, a nagging feeling that we had better learn something from this and we'd better think about how we're doing things going forward because clearly a weakness has been exposed. And Shays' Rebellion, of course, did much the same thing. Although in the polite societies of Philadelphia, polite meetings of Philadelphia society, the discussions were probably more along the lines of uh, General Washington, what, what say ye of these men of your former army who have now taken up arms against the government of the United States. Oddly enough, Washington didn't seem to feel like uh, there was much to be concerned about with this. Later on, with the Whiskey Rebellions, he will be much more um, engaged. But with Shays' Rebellion, he seems to be looking at this, along with most of the Virginians, he seems to be looking at this with a great deal of uh, concern. Because again, they did fight for these rights. They do want these rights secured. 
and the states are not securing them. The states are not protecting them, and in fact, uh, in many ways, are abusing them. That exposure of those failings of the states has to have a certain weight to the whole matter. And so as they discuss this in the polite circles of of Philadelphia society during this week as they're waiting, there's that constant kind of concern. What can we do to prevent this in the future? With the knowledge that we do have to prevent it, we do have to change something so that these sorts of abuses don't happen. But what can we change? And perhaps questions such as, General, will your Virginia plan, with the, will the plan that Madison is drawing, address that? Will it protect the rights of men like Captain Daniel Shays and, and, and his men who objected? Will it prevent such a rebellion from happening? because there won't be any need for it. Those are the concerns that many of the people have as they wait in this week. Meanwhile, John Dickinson, as I mentioned, will be a representative from Delaware who has not yet arrived. Uh, George Reed is there, however, from, uh, from Delaware, and he becomes aware of the Virginia plan. And he fires off a letter to Dickinson, who is still in Delaware. And again, as I, I don't mean this facetiously, but if you've ever been to Philadelphia, uh, you know that Philadelphia is literally a stone's way throw away from Delaware. So we're not talking about uh, light years here. We're talking about a, a few hours ride uh, on a horse to get this information to and from. Uh, Mr. Reed sends a letter to Dickinson saying, I suspect it to be of importance to the small states that their deputies should keep a strict watch upon the movements and propositions from the larger states who will probably combine to swallow up the smaller ones by addition, division, or impoverishment. The Delaware delegates were strongly in favor of overhauling the Articles of Confederation, and they had agreed to serve for simply that purpose. They wanted nothing else other than a revision of that. But the credentials issued by the state of Delaware forbid them to agree to any revision of the Articles that denies the small state equality of voting in a national congress. Now, this is important to keep in mind that not only did the states choose the delegates that they were sending to this, but they gave them very strict instructions as well. This is how, uh, this is what you can vote for, this is what you cannot vote for, this is what you can do, what you cannot do. And some of these delegates are actually going to set aside their state's instructions to proceed with what they will think eventually of the Constitution as it's uh, finally formed. It's interesting, of course, to to watch these men all under the shadow of George Washington. But they have become men who we should uh, remember as well. John Dickinson, especially. John Dickinson was the penman of the Revolution. Uh, He was born in 1732 in Maryland. He was the second son of Samuel Dickinson, a prosperous farmer, uh, so forth and forth. He was educated in England, uh, London's Middle Temple School. He returned to Philadelphia, became a prominent lawyer, and eventually uh, his superior education and talent propelled him into politics. In 1760, he he served in the assembly of the three lower counties of Delaware. He held the speakership there. He won a seat in Philadelphia as a Philadelphia member of the Pennsylvania Assembly. And later he would become the leader of the conservative side of the, cons- uh, the colony's political battles. 
His defense of the proprietary governor against the faction led by Ben Franklin hurt his popularity, but earned him respect for his integrity. I think that's something we've lost today, isn't it? You can't lose a a political battle in today's world and be respected for maintaining your integrity, for, for, for standing for what you truly believe. But it did cost him his legislative seat. The In 1767 to 1768, Dickinson wrote a series of newspaper articles for the Pennsylvania Chronicle that became to be known collectively as Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania, which attacked British taxation policies and urged resistance to unjust laws. But they were also notable for the fact that they they stressed that there is a, a great possibility of a peaceful resolution. The letters were very popular in the in the colonies so much so that he received an honorary degree, a doctorate degree from the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton, and public thanks uh, from a meeting in Boston. Though he supported peace, he kind of supported the Whig cause as well, the idea of, of independence. He did draw up petitions asking the king for redress of grievances, and at the same time he chaired a Philadelphia committee of safety and defense and held a colonelcy in the 1st Battalion recruited by Philadelphia to defend themselves against the British. After the war started, he continued to hope for a peaceful solution, and in the Second Continental Congress, 1775 to 76, he was still a representative of Pennsylvania. He drew up the Declaration of Causes to taking up arms. In the Pennsylvania Assembly, he drafted an authorization to send delegates to Congress and directed them to seek redresses of grievances, but ordered them to oppose separation from Great Britain. By then, he was, of course, in the minority position. Uh, in Congress, he voted against the Declaration of Independence. That's right. He, he voted against it, refused to sign it, and would eventually help with the Constitution. He did, however, become one of the only two contemporary congressional members who would enter the military. When he was not reelected, he was given a Brigadier General's commission, withdrew to his estate in Delaware, and uh, declined to serve from that point forward in Congress. But he did take part in the Battle of Brandywine as a private in a special Delaware force, but otherwise saw no military action in his fight. He did come out of retirement, take a seat in the Continental Congress in 1779, where he signed the Articles of Confederation. Earlier, he had headed the committee that had drafted those, and in 1781, he became Delaware's Supreme Executive Council President. Shortly thereafter, he moved back to Philadelphia. Then he became the President of Pennsylvania, And in 1786, he represented Delaware. He attended and chaired the Annapolis Convention that we talked about. The next year, Delaware sent Dickinson to the Constitutional Convention. He was quite uh, quite ill, so he missed a number of sessions, but he made worthwhile contributions, including service on the Committee on Postponed Matters. And he resented deeply Madison's forcefulness and the other nationalists. But he helped engineer the Great Compromise, that would eventually allow this thing to go through. He wrote public letters supporting the constitutional ratification, and but did leave early. So he didn't actually sign the Constitution, but he did authorize his friend and fellow delegate, George Reed, to do so for him. Although he lived two decades after the convention, he would hold no public office and devoted himself to writing on politics. And in 1801, published two volumes of his collected works. He died in Wilmington, Delaware, in 1808 at the age of 75, and is buried there. Yet another of our founding fathers, our framers, as it will. 
we tend to think of these guys as all homogenous, all heroes, all doing the same sorts of things. But the truth is that they were as, they were as diverse as America is today and was then. Here were men who voted against declaring independence from Britain, sitting in Independence Hall, what will eventually become Convention Hall, um, in Philadelphia, pounding out the Great Compromise that will eventually lead to the Constitution of the United States and allow Delaware to take its place amongst the, the great big states on equal footing and on just as sure a footing as well. John Dickinson of Delaware. In the meantime, the rains continue to fall, and George Washington becomes ever more irritated, angered, nonplussed, I guess is a good way to put it. He is eventually quite irritated and impatient. And he ends this week of the Constitutional Convention by saying, These delays greatly impede public measures and serve to sour the temper of the punctual members who do not like to idle away their time. Well, they're not really idling away their time, but George Washington's a military man. He likes people to be present and accounted for. It's Constitution Thursday on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show.